You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning to everyone who is joining me in the United States and good evening to everyone joining me from South Asia. My name is Tamanna Salikuddin. I am the Director for South Asia Programs at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And it's my pleasure today to welcome a host of esteemed speakers who will be speaking to us about the regional effects or the impact of the coronavirus in the region of South Asia. The United States Institute of Peace, or USIP, is the United States national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for US and global security. And during this time of a global pandemic, it is more important than ever to really think about how we can solve conflicts um, globally and in every corner of the world. It is my pleasure today to talk about how um, the impact of coronavirus in South Asia with over almost 2 billion people in South Asia, the countries that today we'll be looking at India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. There has been obviously a huge health crisis, but also dire economic impacts. And then the, we will also be looking at the governance challenges. And as everyone in South Asia loves to talk about politics, we are going to hear how politics has also been affected by this crisis. Um, the panelists will open with some opening remarks and then I welcome the audience to ask their own questions through YouTube. You can put them in the comments and we will uh, pass on your questions to our esteemed speakers. And with that, I, I would like to begin with Ambassador Arun Singh from India. Ambassador Singh uh, served as India's ambassador to the United States from 2015 to 2016. He has also served as India's ambassador to France and to Israel. Throughout his distinguished 37-year career in the Indian Foreign Service, he has served during pivotal periods in key global capitals and was instrumental in shaping India's foreign policy. So with that, I welcome Ambassador Singh to uh, enlighten us a little bit about the impact of coronavirus in India. Thank you. Thank you, Tamanna. So when we look at uh, how India has handled and responded to the COVID challenge, it's clearly a mixed picture. Uh, it took early action. It, in fact, as early as 8th January, the health secretary of the government of India sent a message to the health secretaries of the provinces, informing them about the potential infections and asking them to strengthen and prepare the health infrastructure accordingly because the first reports had come out from Wuhan on 7th January. As early as 18th January, India started thermal screening of passengers coming in from China and thereafter imposed some travel and visa restrictions from passengers related to China. Unfortunately, it didn't pay the same attention to the passengers coming in from Europe or to those coming in from the Gulf. And so the first infections into India came from that region. Again, it was very early that India imposed uh, a lockdown and restrictions on international flights. So these early measures had an impact. Uh, for instance, if you look at first 55 days since the first confirmed report came into a country, India had only 600 cases, while Spain had 33,000, Italy had 64,000. 
Similarly, if you look at the figure of 12 days after the first 100 cases, uh, the uh, numbers are, uh, are similar, uh, comparing the numbers in India to those in Spain, Italy, uh, US, or other countries. So with the measure that India took, it lowered the rate of increase. It provided the government, both at the center and in the provinces, some time to build capacity to respond to the challenge. It gave them time also to understand the virus and its impact. But what was most important was it generated an awareness among the population about the potential impact and the kind of precaution they needed to take. So I think the strictness of the measures that India took uh, enabled uh, that awareness to come about. But it did have negative consequences. There was a severe impact on the economy because of the lockdown, because only essential services were allowed to be performed. Supply chains were disrupted. But what was the most visible and perhaps uh, uh, impact with uh, great consequence was the impact on daily wage migrant labor. Because there was an expectation that if the lockdown is for three weeks or four weeks, and if both the state, society, and employers took particular steps to meet the requirements of the daily wage labor, continue to pay them their wages or provide food and shelter to them, then they would be they would accept the situation they were in and not want to move back to their homes. That didn't come about. And uh, so they wanted to go back to their homes. Many of them went in very difficult conditions. And to some extent, that led to a spread of infection to other parts of the country. And of course, a very difficult economic and personal situation uh, for them. Eventually, the Indian government uh, did open up the economy and the lockdown was eased because it was assessed that um, the economic situation would become very dire, uh, especially for those who, who are in the service industry and relied on daily wages. Now, with the opening up of the economy, like in other countries, uh, the infection rates uh, obviously started going up. Uh, but although the, there was an increase in absolute numbers, if you look at it in terms of rates, especially compared to the rates of increase in other countries, perhaps it was not so high. So today, uh, the total level number of infections are about 350,000. Now, if you compare that, given India's population of 1.3 billion with more than 2 million infections in the US or 500,000 in Brazil, which is one-fourth India's population size or the large numbers in Russia, or even in Europe, if you look at UK or Germany, where they had more than 200,000 infections. So in, in percentage terms, the infections are still relatively small, but the absolute numbers are <clears throat> still rising. And that has not been flattened. And therefore, that is certainly a matter of concern uh, for the government and for society. Among the other sort of positive features in this, uh, despite all the uh, causes of concern, is that more than 50% of those infected have recovered. Also, there seems to be a concentration of the infections in about five states of India largely in the western part of India, and then one in the south, Tamil Nadu, and also in some major urban centers. Uh, again, because there is high density living in those urban centers. But again, large parts of the country, uh, especially the rural areas, there is not much impact uh, of the infection. So that gives some hope, uh, gives space for the government to take action, and also space for the economy uh, to be revived. Again, in terms of the negative uh, aspects, we see pressure building up on hospitals in cities like Delhi and Mumbai. 
And that's a challenge that the government needs to address. Uh, they have started commissioning hotels to serve as centers, uh, the sort of joined two hospitals to take uh, spillover uh, people who would be uh, looked after there. They're converting banquet halls, sports centers, uh, railway coaches are being converted into facilities so that uh, those who cannot be accommodated in hospitals or those where the symptoms are not very severe can be treated in these facilities. Again, among uh, issues of concern are infections being noticed among hospital workers because obviously uh, they are getting very deep exposure and the kind of um, equipment they may need to prevent that uh, kind of infection is not fully there. Uh, there's infection also happening in uh, police and those who are providing law and order uh, sort of services. And I think another area of concern is because of the focus that is there on COVID uh, in all societies, other illnesses are getting neglected. And therefore patients uh, with other problems are avoiding going to hospitals or doctors are not able to give sufficient attention. So that's again something that needs to be addressed. Uh, because of the deep impact on the economy, uh, the government, aside from opening up, has taken measures, uh, one, to provide some support to the poorer sections of society, and again, bring in stimulus uh, to kickstart the economy. So food assistance was provided to more than 740 million people. Uh, financial assistance worth $7 billion was again provided to the poorer sections of society. Uh, free gas cylinders for cooking were provided for three months uh, to 80 million families uh, per month. Um, the, uh, the employee provident, provident fund contributions were made by the government for 5 million workers in the organized sector. And again, government used this opportunity to push through major policy reforms uh, in agriculture, in the labor market, providing more space for private sector in industry, dealing with medium and small scale industry, building of infrastructure. So many policy measures that were pending and were seeing some political opposition I think this moment was seized to push through those measures. And again, of course, we have to see the impact of those measures because they would play out more in the medium and longer term, but they've been brought into play. And the government also pushed through a stimulus package of $260 billion, which is about 10% of the GDP. Uh, but much of it is in terms of facilitation of credit. If you look at actual fiscal stimulus, and I think because of the uh, sort of constraints uh, on the fiscal situation because of reduced tax revenues, uh, because of the decline in the, uh, in the economy, uh, the actual fiscal stimulus has been only 1% of the GDP. So clearly more needs to be done on that front because many have argued that aside from the supply side stimulation, demand stimulation uh, would also be required if the economy is to be revived at a faster pace. Other than the domestic uh, measures, both in terms of prevention and handling the prices and the economic stimulus, uh, the Indian government uh, took uh, determined steps for global cooperation and to remain internationally engaged. Uh, the Prime Minister has had uh, regular telephone conversations with leaders from different countries. India pledged $15 million uh, to Gavi, the International Vaccine Alliance. Uh, India shared its stocks of medicines with more than 120 countries, including the United States, countries in Latin America, Caribbean. Uh, it is now the world's foremost producer of vaccines and contributes to immunization of 60% of world's children. Uh, there's talk of remdesivir being a uh, possible drug that may be used. 
and uh, Gilead has licensed several Indian companies for production of that drug. Before this crisis, uh, there was not much production of PPE, the personal protective equipment in India. And today, India has become the second largest producer globally of PPE. At a SARC meeting that was uh, convened at India's initiative, India pledged about $10 million for support to SARC countries. Uh, it sent medical teams to Kuwait, to UAE, Mauritius, Seychelles, Madagascar, and to Maldives. Um, it has worked, as many other countries have done, to evacuate its citizens uh, from all across the world and uh, also use the Indian Navy for evacuation from Indian Ocean Island countries, Mauritius, Seychelles, Madagascar, and also from the Gulf countries. It has worked to provide online training to healthcare professionals in South Asia and other neighboring countries. And when it evacuated its citizens from Wuhan in the initial phase, India had also evacuated um, some from Bangladesh, Myanmar, Maldives, South Africa, and Madagascar. So I think in some, I would say, uh, the picture is clearly mixed. Uh, challenges lie ahead because the absolute numbers by which we are seeing daily increase, that is not yet on a decline. But if you look at it in terms of rates, then the numbers are still not frightening. Uh, and um, uh, it's concentrated in one part of the country, and there has been a very determined, consolidated effort, both by the government and the states, uh, to try and work together to deal with this challenge. Uh, so that's how they're approaching it. But uh, as I said, you know, the crisis is not yet over, and, and the determined effort has to continue. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ambassador Singh. Uh, appreciate your comments. Um, Next, we'd like to consider the impact of the coronavirus in Pakistan. And for that, we turn to Ambassador Maliha Lodi. Um, she was, until recently, Pakistan's ambassador and permanent representative to the United Nations in New York. And she was the first woman to represent Pakistan at the UN. Uh, she has been twice ambassador to the United States here in Washington. And she served as the high commissioner to the UK from 2003 to 2008. And she has also served as member of the UN Secretary General Advisory Board on Disarmament Affairs from 2001 to 2005. I welcome Ambassador Lodi for her comments. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Tamanna. It's uh, good to be uh, on this uh, interesting platform. I mean, we're still learning, uh, frankly, about the impact uh, of this unprecedented uh, virus. Um, so let me just give you a quick rundown. I'll keep my opening remarks uh, somewhat short because I think it'll be nice to have more interactive sort of question and answers. So let me start by saying that three and a half months or so into the pandemic, uh, Pakistan is now seeing the coronavirus infections surging. Uh, cases and fatalities are going up and so are hospitalizations. Uh, but fortunately, uh, the healthcare facilities are not yet overwhelmed, although in some big cities, there are reports of hospitals uh, and health workers, uh, you know, facing uh, greater challenges than they did in the first uh, three months or so. The number of uh, deaths, however, remains relatively low. Uh, again, this is by comparison. I mean, no death is ever low. Uh, by comparison, it's just under 3,000 uh, right now. Uh, but infections have been surging, as I said, in the past month alone. 
uh, they've increased by 100,000. They're about 150, 157,000 uh, right now as I speak. So it seems that South Asia, and I can't really speak for the others, but it seems that at least part of South Asia uh, is witnessing a delayed virus curve emerging uh, later than obviously Europe, the United States, and even Latin America. Um, and with the government uh, now saying and uh, telling its citizens uh, only a few days ago that the situation is likely to become more serious in the next six weeks or so, and with the peak expected perhaps sometime in August, uh, so in a few weeks' time. But, you know, like other countries, uh, not just in South Asia, but across the world, Pakistan had no primer to guide it about what to do when the first infection was confirmed on the 26th of February. So it had to move swiftly, learning from others, from science, and the science on this was evolving, as you know, it evolves even as we you know, discuss this issue. Um, and of course, relying on guidelines from WHO. Uh, and I have to say WHO did play a very key part. And I think the kind of criticism that it is facing is extremely unfortunate uh, right now. Pakistan has been a strong supporter of all multilateral institutions and WHO in particular uh, during this crisis. Pakistan's close relations with China also enabled uh, two things, lessons that the Chinese authorities obviously learned and then shared uh, with us. Um, and of course, the dispatch of medical teams a few weeks uh, into the crisis that Pakistan was facing, uh, from whom we were able to learn firsthand uh, some of the, you know, some of the kind of uh, challenges and how they address those challenges. Secondly, of course, we received much needed equipment um, and help uh, from China because it took weeks uh, to ensure that we had enough uh, of everything, uh, PPEs as well as uh, masks, even basic uh, surgical masks, as well as uh, the more uh, sophisticated masks that were required by health workers. So let me make uh, basically six points about the government's management of this unprecedented uh, health emergency. First, I would say that Prime Minister Imran Khan, like other world leaders, had to make tough choices and strike a balance, difficult as it was between addressing the health crisis and its economic fallout, especially on the poor and the vulnerable. And from the outside, uh, outset, the government had declared that it would do whatever it could to protect the underprivileged as it negotiated uh, the health crisis. The second point was that the government quickly established new bodies, uh, new structures, because these were seen necessary to fast track decisions, organize medical supplies and equipment to under-resourced hospitals and to coordinate the COVID response with the four provinces, uh, which was essential. Uh, you know, the center could do so much and the rest had to be done at the provincial level. Health happens to be a provincial uh, subject. So a national coordination committee chaired by the Prime Minister was set up and what was called a command and operations center was set up. Uh, the command and operations center had the participation of uh, members of the Pakistani military uh, who were given responsibility for logistics, for ensuring the su supplies reached 
uh, the provinces and of course first ensuring that we had enough and adequate supplies for these hospitals. And this body, the uh, Command and Operations Center has been meeting daily to review the situation on a daily basis and then to make whenever it felt necessary quick policy recommendations so that the government could take the decisions based obviously uh, to the extent possible uh, on, as I said, the evolving medical science uh, and of course the ground situation in Pakistan itself. The third point uh, I would make is that, you know, in the, in the early months, uh, of course, a two week lockdown was imposed. Uh, critics, of course, argued that this was not early enough. But at that time when it was imposed, the cases were really not that high. Uh, and the prime minister said he wasn't keen uh, to extend the restrictions uh, for too long because of the damaging impact on the economy. Uh, and, you know, he kept repeating the point, and he still does that, that he has to protect both lives and livelihoods. The fourth point uh, is that the restrictions were then eased. The lockdown was eased, uh, as in other countries, on May the 9th, uh, on most economic activities. Uh, the medical community felt that this uh, easing should have waited a, a while. Uh, but the Prime Minister said that a smart lockdown made more sense, and that's what he called it, a smart lockdown, which was more targeted than a sweeping one. Uh, it made more sense because then you could get essential economic activity going and, you know, try to mitigate or limit the economic damage. Um, the opposition-controlled Sindh government, which was dealing with Pakistan's largest city, uh, which is, you know, a city, Karachi, of over... 20, 22 million people uh, disagreed with this approach and retained uh, many restrictions. And of course, the center said, fine, uh, you know, you have to, in a way, uh, one size doesn't fit all. You have to see what is best uh, on the ground uh, in your province uh, and in, in, in the city of Karachi. So, you know, this was resolved in that way. I mean, there was a disagreement on a certain policy approach, and then there was agreement that Sindh could do what it wished and Punjab uh, could do what it wished. Um, now, the fifth point I just want to make is that the medical community, of course, um, has warned, as I said before, uh, you know, that the initial lockdown uh, should have, you know, perhaps come a little earlier than it did. Uh, and certainly, uh, their warnings became more urgent when the government moved to relax restrictions in the month of Ramadan uh, and ahead of the religious festival of Eid. So in a series of statements, the Pakistan Medical Association urged the government not to lift the lockdown um, as over time, hospitals could become overwhelmed. I think you know, it was right for the medical community to you know, warn the government, to caution the government, um, especially since uh, the wisdom of these warnings were later borne out when in the post Eid period, virus cases rose exponentially. Now, it is possible that more testing and greater testing capacity uh, showed that there were more cases. And of course, I don't have the exact figure with me, a significant portion of these cases, uh, we saw these patients recover um, and many had mild symptoms. So, you know, the cases, the number of cases does not itself reflect uh, the fact that, you know, people are, you know, all of them are still ill. Um, as I said, many of them have recovered. These are gross figures. 
Now the sixth point, uh, you know, uh, is that uh, the government's efforts to buffet the impact on the poor and the daily uh, wage earners, uh, that saw the largest cash payout program in Pakistan's history uh, to needy families across the country under what is called the SAS program. So over $740 million have been dispersed already to 10 million vulnerable families as emergency assistance. And of course, this has been accompanied by rescue uh, and stimulus packages announced for trade and industry uh, of around you know, $2.2 billion or so. Um, I think the final point uh, I would make, or the final two points I would make is, uh, you know, one of the big challenges, uh, and I can't speak for all of South Asia, but certainly uh, Pakistan has been, uh, you know, people, especially in the rural areas, but not only in the rural areas, tended not to take the virus threat seriously and failed to practice social distancing or take any precautions. Um, and there has been, you know, a great deal of misinformation. Uh, I mean, some of it we see worldwide actually uh, as well, but misinformation as a consequence of which people felt, well, if this is no more than a flu, uh, then, you know, we don't need to take great care. So the lack of social discipline has, has posed a challenge. Uh, at times, frustrating the government's efforts, uh, its entreaties and its appeals to people because, you know, in the ultimate analysis, uh, you know, it was up public compliance depends on public compliance. Uh, the, you know, the government set out elaborate uh, standard operating procedures, SOPs, uh, when it opened the economy or reopened the economy. And then it was up to the public and businesses and shopkeepers to ensure uh, compliance. I mean, it was impossible for the government, any government, to police uh, you know, the implementation of these SOPs. Uh, so, you know, one of the challenges that we continue, I think, to face, um, even though the situation is now much more serious than it was uh, two or three months ago, uh, is, you know, the public taking this seriously and practicing social distancing. You know, the poor cannot practice social distancing. I think let's be clear about that too. Uh, you know, when you live uh, I mean, slum areas or crowded uh, urban areas, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult. How do you practice it? Uh, people have to go out and get essential goods. So, so this is a challenge. I think, you know, this is a developing country challenge, should I say. Uh, lastly, um, I think the, the latest situation in view of the surge, as I said before, of these virus cases uh, is the government's announcement uh, only uh, a day ago uh, of uh, an imposition uh, of a lockdown, a targeted lockdown in localities of 20 big cities of Pakistan. These are hotspots that have been identified uh, by the government and therefore uh, a lockdown has you know, gone into uh, place uh, to deal uh, with the situation. So this is where we are. Uh, you know, as I said, you know, the picture is uh, mixed. Uh, but I think what the uh, what Pakistan has managed to do is to, you know, develop considerable capacity uh, in its healthcare system uh, to deal with the growing number of uh, patients or affectees 
uh, of, this, of this virus. And of course, the questions that you know, remain unanswered is, why was there a late uh, virus curve here? Uh, is it going to be as serious as in other countries? Are there underlying factors uh, that are perhaps preventing uh, more large-scale uh, infections? Of course, they are pretty large-scale right now too, but even larger scale, let's say. I think you know, we don't have the science on this yet. So I, I will leave it there. Thank you, Tamanna. Thank you so much, Ambassador Lodi. That was very enlightening. Um, next, we want to turn to Bangladesh and invite Ambassador Tariq Karim uh, to share his thoughts. Ambassador Karim is currently a consultant for the South Asia Regional Integration and Engagement uh, with the World Bank. He's also a senior fellow advising uh, the Center for Bay of Bengal Studies at the Independent University in Bangladesh. He has served as uh, Bangladesh's High Commissioner to India from 2009 to 14, where he held the personal rank and status of State Minister of Bangladesh, and he's also former ambassador to the United States. Uh, he's a career diplomat throughout the history of Bangladesh who's been there at critical moments, and I invite him uh, to share his thoughts with us today. Thank you so much, Ambassador Kareem. Okay. Right. Thank you, Tamanna, and thanks to USIP for inviting me to this meeting. And it's a pleasure for me to be meeting Ambassador Malia Lodi, whom I had met earlier, but I have not met the others. Uh, hello to everyone. Uh, unlike India, Bangladesh did not act early enough. And, uh, uh, but uh, I share, uh, you know, uh, Ambassador Lodi's comments that we too are in a learning curve although the learning may have been somewhat mixed. Um, initially, we were complacent. And uh, part of it was, I mean, it was general opinion that we are a warm country, we are humid, the virus cannot survive in, you know, all these myths that, that were circulating. And I think many in the government also believe that, okay. Uh, and of course, we were also preoccupied with two big national events. One was the uh, birth centenary of the father of the nation, and the second was the golden jubilee of uh, 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 gold, uh, uh, Bangladesh's uh, independence. And everyone, particularly in the administration, was quite preoccupied. Our first case uh, was reported only on the 8th of March. And it's only after that, and after the WHO announced that this was a pandemic, I mean, it confirmed uh, that this was a pandemic, that we took it seriously, and the government then did uh, what India did not. We did not declare a lockdown. We declared a public, extended public holiday. This has still been the subject of some uh, controversy and criticism, because people took a holiday as a holiday. Many just went off to the beaches and everywhere else, and then, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, uh, away from work. Uh, social distancing was uh, advocated, but uh, violated more than, than practiced. Um, the biggest problem has actually happened the minute the public holiday was given and we discovered the, the, our biggest uh, export uh, earning industry, the garment industry, which actually earns about 85% of our total export uh, earnings, revenues, uh, took a big hit. Uh, orders were canceled or orders were not being lifted. 
And right now, the garment industries are running at about 30 to 30, 40 percent uh, uh, capacity. In other words, they have uh, 50 to 60 percent excess capacity or idle capacity. Workers have been laid off. And uh, we see the effect of the uh, layoff because many of them were daily wage workers. Our informal economy, uh, even apart from the garment industries, our informal economy is much, much larger than the formal economy in that sense. Uh, people have small businesses or they do they are in the service sectors, they are paid the wages daily, suddenly out of jobs. And this, you can see the effect of it on the streets. Uh, so this, for, for Bangladesh, which was the sort of rising or shining star uh, uh, globally, and particularly in South Asia, with 8% uh, GDP growth uh, predicted almost universally by all the international organizations and private financial institutions. Now, the World Bank says we'll probably have a growth rate of between 2.8, uh, uh, 1.8 to 2.8%. And uh, even though we'll still expected to have uh, a better growth rate than most, but it's, that's going to take a big hit. Our uh, unemployment has gone up, as I said earlier. Uh, the second big source of foreign exchange revenue is from expatriate workers, the remittances we get. The remittances we get from them is roughly equal, uh, give or take a little, with, the, with our foreign exchange reserves. And when the remittances from uh, the expatriate workers comes down, it is going to have an effect on other, other uh, factors of the economy. Um, equality, inequality, and income disparity has suddenly skyrocketed. Uh, there was a study done by a very uh, 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 well-respected think tank of Bangladesh, the BRAC, the BRAC Institutes of Governance and Development. Uh, in collaboration with another partner. And they, they, they came out with startling figures. You know, we boasted, Bangladesh boasted that we had been able to reduce our poverty levels from what it was in 1971, 72, uh, to just about 20% below the poverty line. Now, with the new figures that they, this was done on the basis of a nationwide survey undertaken by them, uh, about 87% of the urban sum dwellers have been pushed into this poverty trap. And about 25% more people, they are called the new poor, who have been added to the old poor. So roughly um, about 47% of the total, 43% of the uh, total uh, uh, population of Bangladesh is now poor officially or, or economically classified as poor. Uh, they have to be given dole outs and cash, uh, cash subsidies and, and, and food subsidies. Uh, although the lockdown, has, as I said, has been called a public holiday, it's not really been a lockdown. We uh, government did specify certain SOPs, but they were more flouted than observed. This was the problem. Uh, the problem of policing is, was, was very difficult and, and somewhat delicate also. Um, public health, although we have done remarkably well in many human development indices, 
the infrastructure itself continues to remain very poor. And it's, it was just not, it still is not geared fully to meeting with a full-blown pandemic. Our cases today is, in, in a sense, we, you know, I, I was alarmed to read that we might well be headed to becoming one of the new hotspots. We have, since 8th of March, when the first case was reported, we are about to push in, in another 48 hours, we will have reached across the 100,000 mark. So compared with the Indian, uh, you know, the density of population and the number of cases, ours is really phenomenally high. Uh, our death rates are uh, about, I think, uh, 1,002 or 1,300 so far. Death rates are still, recovery rates about 12,000. So, you know, these are skewed figures. Uh, and these reflect only the official statistics. Our testing is one of the lowest in the world, unfortunately. We are just testing according to WTO standards, about 500 per million, which is, which is abysmally low. So I expect that as testing increases, the numbers will suddenly jump exponentially. Many people, you know, uh, and this has happened not just in Bangladesh or the developing countries. It's also happened in developed countries. Uh, if you have not tested, you're not counted. Ignorance is bliss in a sense. That was the philosophy. Um, now, the new poor are mostly the urban poor. These are, these are a different type of poor. They are not the poor that I was used to much earlier in the early days of Bangladesh. They are not docile, they're not submissive, they are not illiterate, they are not totally uneducated. They were used to a better standard of life that got used to it. They were used to a, a consumer a culture also. Suddenly, they don't have enough money to be able to feed the family. This survey also found that income levels in the fa family households had gone down uh, uh, quite, quite, uh, quite a big hit. Many had reduced from three meals to two meals to one meal a day. Uh, I was out today, I had to do some grocery shopping and I was assailed by somebody who otherwise would, I would have taken to have been a, somebody working somewhere. Well-dressed, uh, polite, coming up from his, but his eyes were bloodshot. He, he, he just said, I, I can't feed my children. I said, what did you do? I was in the garment industry. How long have you been laid off, sir, for the last two or three months? Now, this is a very common phenomenon. You'll find ladies out there, not the common run-of-the-mill beggars or, or you know, people who used to work somewhere, who are also out there begging. Now, these are people who are having to swallow their pride and self-respect to, to uh, you know, uh, jettison the dignity and come out and beg. I there is also in the undertone, uh, 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 you know, currents of, of, of resentment uh, because they see the more affluent, the upper middle class going to the supermarkets, buying their groceries, you know, with the shopping carts full, going out. Something is simmering there. I can't quite touch it, but it is there. Okay. And, and so, uh, a number of things. I don't know how it will. It will ultimately will it translate into social unrest or not? I don't know. What happens if social unrest starts spreading? I don't know. 
uh, what ha when does a crowd become a mob i don't know i mean uh, in the united states and in europe and elsewhere you've suddenly had phenomenon with suddenly quite peaceful demonstrations part of it goes uh, uh, awry and then things get out of control uh, so uh, food security uh, is an aspect uh, in the sense that we have adequate food grains stock. And in fact, we were, we were expecting a bum bumper harvest. We did have a bumper harvest. I think we lost about 20% to 25% of the crops because of the cyclone Amphan, which was not seasonal. So we are, we are also you know, uh, 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 hostage to the vagaries of nature. And uh, now we are expecting floodwaters to come in. So about 30% of the crops, the government said, harvest them even if they are not fully ripened. But you know, I mean, those probably most of it will be uh, uh, will have to be written off. We'll have to create storages because we were quite confident that we would have no food uh, problems. Uh, we would not have to do major uh, uh, imports for the next six months or so. We may we are probably going to have to revise that particularly considering that the World Food Organization has given out a warning of uh, a possible uh, uh, food shortage this year. Uh, so food security, now if more and more people find that they cannot get food and they don't have the money and they don't have the money because they don't have the jobs and new jobs are not created because the major uh, one sector industry, industry that we rely on is not coming back on stream and that's not coming back on stream because the supply chain and value chain have totally collapsed. We'll have to first somehow uh, uh, restart or put back together locally the value chains and the supply chains, then perhaps go out and, and address the regional value chains that, that existed before. So we will probably uh, uh, have to um, re-evolve towards a new kind of globalization. Governance and how, and then the law and order. Uh, law and order is still very much in, in, in tight control. Uh, governance is a problem in the sense that although government has taken many decisions, there is evidently a lack of coordination and an evidence of dysfunctionality in the executions. Today, as I said, I mean, we are in a learning curve also as, uh, as in Pakistan. We are learning and we are adapting. Uh, perhaps we need to do that faster. Um, whether uh, today they have announced that, okay, they will be, Bangladesh is going to be divided into so many zones with the red zones. Most of the red zones are basically in Dhaka and Chittagong and the industrial suburbs of Narayanganj and, and Ghazipur. Uh, and then there are uh, yellow zones where there, there is, uh, the, the cases are uh, much uh, uh, are lower, uh, which will have uh, limited uh, uh, increase and outcrest. And then the green zones, which will be totally, and that's mostly in the rural areas. Rural areas have not been so badly hit. It's been the urban areas which have been very badly hit. But when these urban people get infected, they go back to the villages and to the homes. And that's how it's likely to spread. Virus came in late to Bangladesh, in a sense. Um, you know, we, nobody actually even socially took it very seriously until the end of March. Uh, I was at a dinner at the end of March. They were saying, no, no, the government will hold on to it until the celebrations are over. But then the government had to stop the celebrations and cancel everything. 
Um, so we are in a learning curve. We are still uh, uh, beginning to learn how to cope. The SOPs for the how the zones will be actually uh, uh, monitored and and uh, and and uh, operated are still vague. People are don't, still don't know. Uh, so we have, in a sense, elements of a perfect storm gathering. Are these going to get together or not? I don't know. We'll see. And I'll end there. Thank you so much, Ambassador Kareem. I, I appreciate your comments. Uh, last and but certainly not least, we'll talk, uh, turn to Dr. Sarana Mutu from Sri Lanka. He is the founder and executive director of the Center for Policy Alternatives. He's been a member of the Foreign Policy Advisory Group and the board of the Lakshman Kadirgamar Institute for International and Strategic Studies. He is a titan of civil society in Sri Lanka and uh, CPA has a very fond spot in my own heart as one of my first overseas experiences as a young law student. So I welcome Dr. Saranamutu to please uh, talk to us about Sri Lanka. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you for those very generous introductory remarks and thank you to USIP for giving me the opportunity to talk about the coronavirus and its impact on Sri Lanka. Well, to begin with, as far as Sri Lanka is concerned, we have at the present moment 1,900 odd cases, and we have had 11 deaths. And in that respect, ostensibly, we seem to be doing relatively well in comparison to our neighbors. Furthermore, we are coming out of lockdown. We've had a curfew, and now the curfew has been restricted from 12 midnight till 4 o'clock in the morning, as it were. And, you know, the management of the virus in terms of how to cope with it, etc., has been taken over by the armed forces, largely. Um, the government has set up what they call task forces to deal with it, and the task forces are full of the service chiefs, the police chief, as well as former Army, Navy, Air Force uh, officers. And this is because the president, who was elected in November of last year, is, of course, the former defense secretary and architect of the victory against the Tigers, who was an Army man. And he has never served in any elected office before. But let me come back to that and the consequences of that. So as far as the sort of impact of it is concerned, yes, Sri Lanka is trying to bring back its citizens who are out and we put them into quarantine. There is an issue with regard to testing and that may well reflect on the low number of cases, but that is they're trying to resolve that. Furthermore, we are also trying to ensure that there is a certain amount of discipline maintained after the easing up of the lockdown, social distancing, wearing of masks and all of that. But I think and I suspect that this may be the case in the rest of South Asia as well. Our populations are not very good at exercising this kind of restraint or self-discipline. And therefore, we've arrested a whole number of people for uh, breaking the, the guidelines, the rules, and also for breaking the curfew. Yeah. The worst impact 
with regard to the virus is, of course, with regard to the economy. As you probably know, Sri Lanka's economy was in a particularly bad shape because of, apart from other things, the Easter Sunday bombings, which resulted in over 250 deaths in 2019, Easter Sunday. So tourism was very much on the back foot then, and now it is really been laid low. We have any number of people who are directly employed in the tourist industry and others who are indirectly employed who are completely out of work. Yeah. In addition to tourism, we have the apparel industry. And the apparel industry too, and I guess this is not dissimilar to Bangladesh, the apparel industry, we do not have any orders for September and October. So that industry too is being laid very low. And then the third one, which is again, one of our key foreign exchange earners, is the remittances from migrant labor, particularly from the Middle East. And that has come down. So the government has started a relief of services, as it were, of trying to provide assistance to the worst off of giving them 5,000 rupees a month. But that has also been stopped, and I will come back to that again. Uh, there are, of course, various debates about uh, whether we can get debt moratoria because we are very badly in debt, not just to China, but to in the international markets as well. Uh, that has not been settled as yet. We are in a situation, therefore, of somewhat of limbo, and this is largely, in terms of the coping with the crisis, largely a question of governance. Now, in November of last year, we had the presidential election. Gotabe Rajpaksa, who was the victor of the war against the Tigers, and President Rajpaksa's younger brother, Defense Secretary and all of that, won the election with majority of 1.5 million votes. He'd never been elected to political office before. His constituency in that respect were his former service colleagues. And he relies on them sort of over 100% perhaps. Now the issue of course was is that after he won the presidency, he needed to win parliament because parliament was in the hands of the opposition. So at the earliest constitutionally provided moment, he dissolved parliament and decided to go for a general election. And that was on the 2nd of March. In the provision of the constitution that he used to dissolve parliament required him to also name the date at which the new parliament would meet. And he named that date to be the 2nd of June. Okay. Now, soon thereafter, the lockdown came about. And the election commissioner, etc., was told to declare a date of election. Could it happen when it was supposed to? The election commissioner said no. So we had about two other dates that were brought up. All were postponed. And eventually now we're going to have elections on the 5th of August. In between all of this, some of us in civil society and some of the political parties too went to court and said, look, this country as a functioning democracy is dealing with a crisis 
And all three arms of government need to function. The executive, the judiciary, and the legislature. This government is functioning without the legislature. As far as raising a public finance and spending a public finance is concerned, they have a vote of account which will take them up to the end of April, which took them up to the end of April. But beyond that, there was an issue. And indeed, there still is an issue until a new parliament is elected to meet. However, the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, held in favor of the government and said there was no need to declare the dissolution of parliament as void, that the government can continue to do what it needs to do, that they have powers to do so. It hasn't actually given a written judgment, but nevertheless, the impact of all of that is that the government can get away with doing what it is doing. Now, what is happening as a consequence is that the virus and the lockdown and all of that is providing both a cover and an alibi for the government to function in a very majoritarian and authoritarian fashion. Gotabe Rajapaksa and indeed the Rajapaksas as a whole have been associated with the singular Buddhist majoritarian sentiments in the country which have been turned against the Muslim community. And this, of course, was exacerbated by what happened on Easter Sunday. So on Facebook, social media, there has been a lot of Islamophobia that has been given play. That, of course, is extremely worrying because those could well spill over into the general election, which is going to happen on the 5th of August. So, as I said before, is the virus has provided the justification and the cover for the government to become more increasingly authoritarian. And so what we're having is a militarization of governance under the cover of the COVID virus. And of course, the argument is, is that, look, the military saved us and ended and won the military victory in the civil war against the Liberation Tigers. Now they have saved us, well, saved us considerably from the ravages of the coronavirus. So let me stop at that. Thank you so much, Dr. Sara. That was very um, enlightening. Um, I wanna encourage everyone who is watching us online to please go ahead and share your questions with us on YouTube in the comments and then I will go through and um, ask those to our participants here. I want to thank you all for your great comments. We have lots of questions. Um, and I'm going to ask some general questions at the beginning, which all of you and any of you can answer. And then we do have some specific questions uh, per specific countries. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, many of you alluded to this debate in each of your countries about lives versus livelihoods and the dire economic impacts um, the World Bank is now estimating that millions of individuals in South Asia will be pushed into extreme poverty. And just recently, uh, a UN um, university sponsored a study from King's College London said that over a billion people worldwide will be pu pushed into poverty and more than half of those will be in South Asia. And so I want to ask you, what is the long term 
one long-term impact for each of your countries, but really what are your policy recommendations? All the countries in South Asia have done some stimulus programs and provided some initial aid to vulnerable populations, but really what is the long-term um, you know, policy recommendations you have for your, for your governments on how they can actually address this uh, huge poverty crisis? Uh, maybe I'll turn to, is uh, Ambassador Singh, would you like to go first or is there someone who, go ahead. No, thank you. Thank you for that question. So uh, clearly as the reports came in of what was happening in Wuhan in terms of number of people dying, the dire situation, and then from Italy, and then you had reports in New York of the hospital system being overwhelmed. So assessing that the governments had no risk, uh, option, uh, including in India, but to impose a severe lockdown. Because if you had the situation with large numbers turning up in hospitals of people dying, that would simply be socially uh, unacceptable and uh, challenging also for the government. So that was done, but then it has had a severe impact on the economy. And I think uh, in terms of the measures, clearly a set of measures have to be taken to directly address the needs of the weaker sections. Uh, most governments are doing that. And of course, one can argue that uh, you can do more of that. But I think one thing that can be done is to improve further the delivery mechanism. Because while a certain amount of money has been committed, a certain percentage of the population in India is being reached, but a certain percentage, uh, I think, is still problem reaching them. Because one challenge that was there was the migrant labor. When they moved away from their homes, then the kind of uh, free ration or uh, low price ration facilities they had in the homes, they could not get in the urban settings. So those are the kind of things that, that would also need to be addressed. But in terms of the uh, medium and longer term, I think economic reforms uh, will be critical. And uh, there is an attempt being made, as I mentioned earlier, that a lot of pending reform measures are being pushed through by the government. Uh, there is now talk globally of a changed supply chain uh, because people are talking more and more about security of supplies, about uh, trusted partners uh, for supply chain. Ambassador uh, Karim also referred to how supply chains might adjust um, post-COVID. So I think um, uh, in India, they would also need to see how is this revised supply chain going to work out. There'll be a certain amount of onshoring of production in every country, including the United States, but not everything can be onshore. So as this is adjusting in areas where India has strength, for example, in digital technology, and that sector will become more important going ahead. We are doing now more and more virtually, including this conversation. Uh, the pharmaceutical sector, again, and that again is an area where India has some strength. So in digital technology, pharmaceuticals, I think India needs to pay a little more attention as to how can strengthen that sector to become a more integral part of technological and other developments taking place as part of the global supply chain. So I would suggest that would be uh, important for India going ahead. Thank you. Um, next, um, Ambassador Lodi, would you like to comment? Yeah, yeah. I think the one lesson uh, that has been driven home uh, by this crisis, and it's not just in Pakistan, it should be across the world, frankly, but naturally I'm only talking about my own country, is that the authorities, whoever the government is, they need to prioritize human security rather than just state security. And that means you know, doing that in practice, not just in terms of PowerPoint presentations, 
I mean, we know all about those. Uh, you know, everyone pays lip service uh, to the notion of human security. Uh, but when it comes to allocation of resources, they actually go uh, to, you know, preserving state security. Now, of course, state security is fundamental uh, in a region that is still mired uh, in crisis and troubled relations uh, between neighbors. But human security becomes important. So, you know, my own, uh, you know, I would say that my government would need, I think, to reorder its priorities to give as much importance to human security as to uh, state security. Now, as far as economic recovery is concerned, naturally, uh, that will depend critically on how long the pandemic lasts. We simply don't know uh, until there is treatment or a vaccine, uh, either one of the two or both, uh, we're likely to see uh, societies still being challenged uh, by this. Uh, so I think that is something that you know, we have to keep in mind. And I really do agree with those who have said from the very outset that uh, trying to make a choice between lives and livelihoods is actually a false choice. Unless you save lives, you can't save livelihoods. So it's all very well uh, to try to limit or mitigate the impact, the economic impact of a health crisis. But we cannot look at a health crisis through an economic prism. The health crisis has to be seen through a health prism. And then we have to look at how to address uh, the economic uh, damage. I think, uh, you know, my prime minister has been in the forefront in urging uh, the developed countries to consider debt relief, wide-ranging debt relief uh, for those countries that are heavily indebted. And I think uh, Pakistan has uh, benefited from an early decision by the Paris Club of restructuring, uh, you know, its debt uh, to uh, the Paris Club. So, I mean, there are a whole host of, I think, global issues as well. I mean, I, I think the question isn't just of how we can recover. Uh, global economic recovery depends on so many geopolitical factors, uh, which I know is not the topic of this uh, discussion, but we can't uh, stay away uh, from geopolitics. So I think, you know, some kind of easing of the Sino-US standoff, uh, you know, that, on that depends critically global economic recovery. And then in turn, our economic recovery, our ability to bounce back, to enhance our exports, uh, to find the kind of markets uh, that may undergo a change because of uh, any reconfiguration of global supply chains. Uh, I mean, that's also easier said than done. I mean, global supply chains are not going to change, uh, you know, be altered overnight. It's going to take years. But in any case, I think, uh, you know, my recommendation to the government would be just one, human security. It's got to be put there right on top of the agenda. Uh, you don't wait for the next health crisis to happen. Uh, you address it now and put the security of your citizens uh, first, uh, or you know, as, as important as. And secondly, uh, as, I, as I said, um, to anticipate the kind of global uh, impact of this pandemic and of course geopolitical developments um, and see where Pakistan can position itself. Uh, in terms of its own uh, economic recovery. And third, I would uh, you know, re, uh, reiterate the Prime Minister's call. Uh, it's time the developed countries also lived up to their responsibility. Uh, I mean, they call themselves leaders uh, of you know, uh, the international community. Well, here's a chance for them to show real leadership and to see how best they can assist uh, those who are in greater need uh, than they are. So I'll end, I'll end there. Thank you, Tamanna.
Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Sarr, Ambassador Kareem, would either of you like to comment? I, I agree with Ambassador Lodi when she said that human security has to come first above every other form of security. Um, Prime Minister Hasina has been doing a delicate tightrope walk, uh, trying to balance the requirements of saving lives as well as livelihoods. It's been difficult, a tightrope act. Um, well, uh, the stimulus, you know, I mean, there's so much money the government can garner. It's going to borrow very, very heavily from domestic banks, you know, and, and that again comes into the rubric of, of the political division that we, uh, we have reflected in our society for a long time. Uh, and, uh, now, of course, uh, the, these, uh, the, the political device that we see seems we are not the only people uh, subject to it. Uh, however, it, it does, it's, it's a fact of life that Bangladesh continues to be a deeply divided uh, uh, polity. And uh, there will be naysayers as well as people, uh, cheerleaders uh, uh, for the prime minister. Um, the stimulus, as I mentioned, uh, this, this uh, report from BRAC, what has been allocated will cover only about 30% of what they have calculated will be required over the next six months. So where's the rest of the 70% going to come from? Uh, I don't see, yes, I think uh, we have already appealed, uh, uh, asked uh, international donors to help in, but I suspect the, uh, there will be some wariness on the part of the international donors also because their kitties are also going to shrink. Every economy in the world has been affected. In a sense, we are, we are back now almost to the days of the Great Depression. And the Great Depression also, uh, you know, uh, triggered off a number of other things. And in a sense, I worry a little bit about that because I see that closing in, uh, that, that uh, revival of ultranational rhetorics coming up, and in a sense, uh, in South Asia, particularly given its uh, very uh, uh, compli complex and complicated history, uh, domestic and external, it's very difficult to separate the two. You might consider something entirely domestic, but it will stir up passions and, and uh, uh, psychological reactions and uh, even political reactions across borders. Who should say, no, that's the domestic uh, affair? Uh, in a sense, it, you know, Bangladesh-India relations, in a sense, have been a model of, of a relationship uh, in, in South Asia, but it has come under great strains because of internal developments in India recently. And in fact, Mr. Modi was supposed to come to Bangladesh on the 17th of March for the uh, centenary celebrations of the father of the nation. Uh, the COVID, in a sense, came as a uh, as, a, as a rescue to both the prime ministers, because there was growing resentment that he should not come at this time, particularly because of developments in India, in, in the northeast of India, and what's happened, what happened in Delhi earlier, uh, and, and generally the, the revival of uh, uh, revival of the two-nation two two theory by India, which was so, so long being the champion of secularism. Uh, so he, he called out the visit because we canceled the celebrations 
And I think for within India also, it, it sort of diverted attention away. So there's been a cooling off, cooling off period on both sides of this. Um, freedom of speech, I think one question was directed to me uh, by Emily. Uh, we do have very draconianly strict laws and people have become, let me just put it this way, we, everybody is very circumspect about how they speak off, uh, speak out and what they say. Uh, so in a sense, criticism is very muted. Uh, there is criticism, some of the papers still do, uh, do come out, uh, but people try and keep within certain limits. Um, the PM's teacher is, in a sense, uh, still quite high, personally. But then that does not necessarily reflect the, the view that the, uh, many people have of what her functionaries or bureaucrats or, or, or uh, party leaders are doing. Uh, to her credit, she has cracked down on allegations of corruption among party leaders, uh, pilfering funds given for relief, etc. And quite a large number of people have actually been sacked. Uh, so, you know, as I said, she's doing a delicate balancing act. I think she is more acutely aware than anyone else. Uh, I mentioned to the elements of the perfect storm gathering, I think she's just as aware of it. Uh, you know, if, if there is hardly an opposition, there is an opposition, but it's, it's a, a very feeble opposition. And, and so, if, you know, in, in any democracy, you have to have this open expression come out. Uh, to act as a safety valve in the pressure cooker. Unfortunately, the pressure cooker is there. The, the, you know, the fire is still simmering under it, uh, but the safety valves have been largely uh, choked off. So we'll have to see how things uh, uh, go on from here. Thank you. Uh, one more thing, if I, if I may add. We may have to do a major rethink on our industrial policy. Uh, we will have to steer away from this dependency on one sector alone. Uh, I think our natural strength has been, as, as the recent events have shown, has been in agriculture. We may have to devote more attention to agro-industries. Uh, the agro-industries could also help us to uh, uh, not only revive uh, regional uh, supply and value chains, uh, there are products we can exchange between India. Uh, we have surplus, they have deficit and uh, vice versa. And, and then gradually expand it outside. Uh, our major export markets were in Europe and uh, the Americas. We'll have to look for other export markets. And perhaps this is one opportunity where SARC may be able to once again address the target of redu reducing uh, 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 or, or increasing the intra regional trade, uh, which is still abysmal. Uh, so in a sense, when Prime Minister Modi uh, took the initiative to call for the virtual SARC summit, uh, it was welcomed by many people here that, okay, after having written off, uh, uh, you know, SARC as, as uh, uh, not, if not dead, uh, permanently uh, comatose, uh, at least we are wearing back to looking at each other to uh, address common problems. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Yes. Sada, please. Yes, as far as Sri Lanka is concerned, I mean, I think, you know, in Sri Lanka and in the region as a whole, the government is going to have to take 
the major responsibility in terms of you know getting countries out of the uh, the virus uh, the crisis that has been created by the virus as far as the economy is concerned and i think a couple of things i mean one is is that the sort of neoliberal outlook will have to be looked at again it's going to much be much more public sector oriented and also that with regard to globalization and all of that we're going to have to look to our own resources particularly with regard to food production and focus on that there's been a question to me in terms of as to how all of this is going to impact on uh, president rajpaksa's party's election prospects and i think it's going to impact positively in this respect is that the government has got a a good uh, response from the public in the way that it has managed the crisis so far but the longer it has to wait though to go to the polls the less likely it would get the two thirds majority that it is asking for in order to change the constitution thank you very much i want to turn to um you know some ideas of we're seeing all globally that the pandemic has exposed or exacerbated existing societal fissures. So you see that here in the United States and we see it in South Asia as well, whether they be ethnic, racial, religious, or caste uh, fissures, even you know between rural and urban divide, migrants, all of these different things. And I invite you, there've been a host of questions sort of related to that. I know Dr. Sara commented a little bit on the rising Islamophobia and uh, post the Easter attacks last year, but also reconciliation um, after the civil war. I think in, in Bangladesh, there's some concern about how the Rohingya are, you know, in the refugee camps, also how rural cases versus urban cases. Uh, Ambassador Lodi, there's some questions about minorities in Pakistan, how they're faring under this, and also the recent um, fighting between the Pakistani military and the Baloch insurgency. What is, you know, what does that mean under the current crisis? And Ambassador Singh, I think there are several issues, um, you know, raised how the protests in Delhi ended uh, with the coronavirus crisis, but also how migrants coming back, how are they being treated as they're leaving urban centers? Uh, there's been criticism of how different migrants and especially lower caste migrants uh, returning to certain rural populations in different states, how they've been treated under the coronavirus crisis. So I invite you all, uh, we'll go backwards this time and allow Dr. Sarah to go first, but really to think about, you know, we're seeing this everywhere, that these societal fissures already exist, but this crisis has, you know, has become a pot boiler where we're seeing them really exacerbated and pushed to their limits. You know, what, what, do, we, what do you expect in your own countries? Well, as I said, I mean, Islamophobia was present and the Rajpaksas seem to be at the helm of giving it sponsorship. And um, in the course of this crisis of the corona, we've had stuff that has been put on social media, which has been really incendiary in terms of suggesting that the Muslim community in this country are responsible for the spread of the virus. Then we had a controversy in the course of the last three months, and it still hasn't quite been resolved, where the government said that in terms of deaths, no one will be allowed to be buried, that everyone had to be cremated. And of course, the WHO guidelines were not to that effect. The WHO said that you could bury or cremate, and that created quite a bit of a stir. So as it stands at the present moment, 
there is this sort of tension. There is this sort of, uh, you know, the tearing apart of communities and given the social distancing and the lockdown and all of that, to do work as far as reconciliation is concerned is extremely difficult, near impossible. And so, you know, there is that challenge. We have to rely again on the government to be providing us with the facilities to go out to people and to talk about social harmony and all of that. Uh, perhaps the election campaign will give us some space to do it and let's see what happens there. But yes, at the present moment, there is this danger of exclusion and divisiveness. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Kareem? Uh, sir, I think you're still on mute. Didn't touch on the Rohingya plight earlier. Uh, the Rohingyas, uh, we detected our first case, I think, a few weeks ago. Uh, but there's still, it's been very well contained, I think, mainly because there are so many uh, international agencies and relief agencies there that they have set up a fairly good and disciplined uh, uh, mini society within Bangladesh there. Uh, they are there in the camps. But then they have health services, they have the local education being performed, they have, they have strict law and order and policing. So in a sense, perhaps, if you can prevent the uh, virus from getting in, then you will be able to contain it. Uh, it is uh, what's happened outside in the cities, and this is mainly in the urban areas, more in the urban areas than in the rural, is particularly, uh, I think, uh, Ambassador Lodi mentioned in Pakistan, this was also the case that after Eid, at the, you know, after the end of Ramadan, uh, uh, government allowed, although there were restrictions on how many people could go for congregation prayers, but most of it was flouted. I was amazed to see photographs of the major mosque in Dhaka, where the Imam had to hold five congregations one after the other, because there was jostling. Now, this was something very cultural. Okay, and, and it's very difficult to change cultural habits and practices. And uh, somebody called me uh, earlier this afternoon and said that we hope this will end before uh, the next Eid coming up. And I said, don't count on it. And in fact, we did a major mistake in being so lax during the last Eid, which is seeing the sudden jump in cases. Uh, you know, you might see the same thing happening again. The lifting of the lockdowns also has is, is, uh, become a subject of, uh, uh, of, of discussions, not yet a subject of criticism, because many are happy to get back the jobs and come back and start earning some money, which will have a trickle-down effect on other members of the family. However, uh, if number of cases uh, uh, suddenly rises uh, or, or uh, takes a jump up, then, and, and the number of deaths also start happening, then you'll suddenly see the people's uh, uh, attitudes changing. And it doesn't take much to change. When, when somebody starts hurting very much, uh, he reacts at some point of time. The, the threshold of, of tolerance snaps. And now in Bangladesh, we have a huge capacity for, uh, 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 and, and a very high threshold for absorbing pain. But we also have a history of outbursts of very violent uh, 
uh, reactions. When so, it's a question of when you reach that tipping point, and what is that final straw or that final thing which will suddenly drive people over the edge. And here, I think the government has to do some fine tuning. They will have to alleviate the immediate pain being suffered, not having money, not be getting access to food. Food is there. But how do you reach it to the poorest of the poor first? Uh, the distribution chains within the country. So in a sense, I think we have to, the government's policies have to be reoriented first to developing intrinsic or national or local resilience first, getting everything uh, working within the country, and then slowly opening up uh, to the region and beyond. And uh, well, our flights have started resumed on a very limited basis. We'll see how that works out. Uh, the, the reports from China that Beijing is uh, certain parts, I think 10, 10 sectors or areas in Beijing have gone back into lockdown. Uh, other areas, we, I think we'll be watching very closely what they do and what happens when once, you know, Europe is going to lift uh, uh, restrictions of movement within the European countries and for flights coming in from abroad. Uh, New Zealand, which had declared itself uh, COVID-free, has just reported, I think, one or two cases coming up. And these were for people coming back from abroad who, who, who were responsible for it. So there are lessons in it, and we are still learning how to cope with this virus. This virus seems to be almost sentient in nature. It anticipates what its host is going to do. It was the fifth mutate, mutation of the virus that reached Bangladesh. And I think recently India discovered that there's been an additional mutation there. So it's, it keeps mutating, and people are not sure exactly how to get a handle on it and a, and a tight grip on it. Thank, Thank you, Ambassador Kareem. Uh, we just have a few moments left, and I want to very quickly go to Ambassador Lodi and Ambassador Singh for their last comments. Uh, Ambassador Lodi? I'll be very short uh, because I think the question you asked has a very simple answer. During the pandemic, uh, I think, you know, in Pakistan, the issue of minorities hasn't really, it hasn't been an issue uh, at all. You won't find a single headline saying somebody's been discriminated against uh, or somebody has suffered. Uh, or some kind of a scapegoat has been found for this. So there's none of that. However, I think what I have been also writing about is that the government and the opposition have not come together or cooperated in the face of the crisis. So I think that is an aspect um, that obviously has uh, attracted a great deal of comment um, and criticism of both government and opposition for not really uh, coming together in the face uh, of a of a crisis that affects uh, all of them. Uh, another aspect, of course, which is partially also government opposition relations is that uh, you know, there have been disagreements uh, in the approach or the response to COVID-19 between the center, the government run by Prime Minister Imran Khan and the Sindh government, which is controlled by the opposition. But I think the important uh, factor to underline here is that even when the Sindh government has disagreed uh, with aspects uh, of the federal government's response, uh, it has always said that it would follow the center's lead. It, it disagrees, but okay, because the center has to, uh, in a way, evolve and implement a national uh, policy, which is to the benefit uh, of all. But lastly, I would very quickly mention, I know we have very little time, because I think one area we didn't cover, and I just, just want to flag it, don't want to uh, explain <coughs> it. And that's the upside of what's been happening 
the role of NGOs, uh, the non-governmental organizations, you know, they have really, I mean, they have a grassroots presence. Many of them are doing uh, really amazing uh, work in the health sector and the development sector, but they have a grassroots presence. So they have done an amazing job in assisting the poor and the vulnerable, and also pitching in at times when they could in helping assist hospital uh, with funding supplies uh, when their funds were not sufficient. So I think, you know, we need to salute um, uh, the, uh, not just the private sector, uh, but the non-governmental organizations that have worked so well during this crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Lodi. Ambassador Singh, I wanna to turn to you for the last word. Uh, sir, you're still on a mute. Thank you, Tamanda. So uh, COVID has affected uh, all communities, religions, castes, and regions uh, in India. And uh, I think the real divide it has showed up is more between the middle class and above on one side and the poorest sections of society on the other. So when people are living in high density conditions, sharing accommodation, uh, sharing a room, uh, large, many families sharing toilets, then what does social distancing mean? which has been universally prescribed as something to deal with the COVID challenge. And again, if you look at uh, some of the responses uh, that India did, organizing very well repatriation of its people from other countries, uh, from US, Europe, from the Gulf uh, countries in Asia. Uh, it also organized very well uh, movement of many of its students who were studying uh, in other states in India. But the movement of migrant labor many argued, did not quite get the same level of attention in the beginning. So I think that was the real differentiation that showed up. And I think that's something that society needs to address going ahead. Uh, again, in rural areas, uh, the discrimination was not really on caste lines, but anybody who was going from urban areas, people in rural areas were taking action to put them in quarantine, in isolation, because they were worried about their own health. There was a certain awareness about the challenge. And I think India going ahead will have to, as some of the co-panelists said, spend more on healthcare and, uh, and healthcare infrastructure. So that would be an important takeaway from the current challenge. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm, uh, this is a great discussion. I wish we could continue, but I really wanna thank our esteemed panelists for your insights. And I hope we can continue these conversations across South Asia and find ways to cooperate across the region. I also wanna, uh, well, thank you to our audience. <clears throat> please uh, sign up for our newsletter on COVID in South Asia on the USIP website and look forward to future webinars hosted by USIP. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you to all my colleagues as well. It was a pleasure to see you, um, Mr. Kareem, and of course meet the others also, albeit uh, virtually. Thank you. Are we? Uh, All right. Yeah, we're out, everybody. We're done. Excellent. Great job. Thank you very much. Good job. Good job. Good job. I want to thank all of you all for uh, taking the time to be with us. And I, hopefully, you know, if there are other interests or issues that you are interested in speaking about in your country, we welcome your thoughts and we'd love to host you again for a webinar. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Tabanda. Thank you. Yeah, well done, everybody. Thank you very much. Take Enjoy care. the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye.
worked out. Good job. Um, oh man, I knew, I didn't know, but I said to myself, I don't know if you thought about this, Tony, but I was sitting here at like right at nine o'clock and I was thinking, man, I haven't done the stream before with the Zoom Gov yet, just out of the application, but it shouldn't give me any problems. And then it gave me the biggest problem of all. So, but um, it's all good. And it went really well. Went well, yeah. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.